The scripture reading comes from the book of Esther 9 and 10. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Eridai, and Vaistha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur, Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and it's so wonderful to see everybody here gather for Sunday service. Uh, today we wrap up in our Esther sermon series. All along we've been saying uh, by analogy that we are God's people who still live in Persia, as it were, navigating through a secular and godless culture. 
And we've been working with the operating question of how do you live in the world but not be of the world? And I want to wrap up this series by asking one final question, and it's this. What's the importance of remembering all that the book of Esther taught us? Well, the answer might seem obvious, but I think we need to go there. And the answer is this. We need to remember so we don't forget. It's circular, it's basic, it's simple, but you know, often is the time, um, or often uh, we do forget the most simple and basic things, uh, don't we? And so we need to remember so that we don't forget. Uh, did you hear about that other story of Adam and Eve? Yeah, Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, enjoying the day, picnicking under the, no the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, Eve turns to Adam and says, Adam, do you love me? And uh, Adam says, of course I do, uh, Evie. You, I love you. And so, you know, uh, Eve is encouraged by this, and she kind of goes on with the picnic. And she, again, they're enjoying the day. And then just a little bit long uh, while after, uh, Eve turns to Adam again and says, Adam, do you love me? And uh, Adam says, oh, of course I do. You're the fruit of my eye. And and I'm, I'm all for you. And so Eve again is encouraged again. But after a little bit, Eve gets a little bit insecure again. And she turns to Adam and says, Adam, do you love me? And at this point, Adam has almost anticipated the question. And, and he's a little bit frustrated at this point. And he, and he turns to Eve and he kind of says very acutely, you're the only one. You know, it didn't, it didn't go over too well in the first service either. But how could Eve forget something so simple, something so basic? But you know what? Honestly, like, we're like that too. We forget things that are simple. We forget things that are basic. And that's really the importance of the book of Esther here. We need to remember so that we don't forget. And I think this last section in the book teaches us about that, uh, the importance of remembering and not forgetting. Uh, this passage will teach us three things, what to remember, how to remember it, and why we really need to remember it. What to remember, how to remember it, and why we should really ultimately remember it. Let's start with what to remember. I want to tell us what we need to remember, and then we'll look in the passage and see how we see it. Uh, here's the what to remember. God will finish the good work he started in his people. God will finish the good work he started in his people. So how do we see this in the passage? Well, to get to our passage, I just need to quickly run through chapter 7 and 8 leading up to chapter 9. Chapter 7 ends with Haman, the enemy of Mordecai and the Jews, impaled on the pole that he actually intended for Mordecai um, in this kind of moment of poetic justice. Chapter 8 is about Mordecai, who's then going to be promoted through the ranks now, given the signet ring that was reclaimed from Haman, and the estate also that belonged to Haman is now going to be honored on Mordecai. But you know, there's still a problem in the passage at this point because Haman's decree, if you'll remember, is still in effect. That on the 13th day of the month of Adar, all Jews will be annihilated throughout the entire Persian Empire. And so Esther goes and pleads to her husband, the king Xerxes, to overrule Haman's dispatches that are already out. 
But even the king knows that he cannot revoke a decree written in his name and sealed with his ring. And so King Xerxes says, uh, write as you please with regard to the Jews and it won't be revoked. And so Mordecai, now with his signet ring, uh, in the name of King Xerxes, writes the following edict. And we're told in chapter 8, verse 11, and following this, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And so this new order gave the Jews the legal right to bear arms and defend themselves on the 13th of the month of Adar, the same day that Haman's order would take effect. Now we arrive at our passage, it's chapter 9, and guess what day it is? It's the 13th of the 12th month of Adar. And we find out at the beginning of this passage that the Jews are armed for defense, and, they're, and we're also told that they absolutely overpower their enemies in not only the citadel of Susa, but in the city of Susa, and also all the provinces of the king. But notice what's happening here. We start from verse 6, and we're told that in the citadel of Susa, Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including the, the 10 sons of Haman. And skip down to verse 10, and it says, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Skip down to verse 15. We're told about Jews now in the city of Susa, and on that day, 300 men are put to death, but again, they did not lay hands on the plunder. Verse 16 says something similar. Actually, it's the exact same thing. Meanwhile, in the rest of the king's provinces on the 13th of Adar, Jews killed 75,000 men, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. It's repeated three times, and they did not lay hands on their plunder. And if you've been at Exilic for a while, we've encountered passages like this before, where something's been repeated at least three times. And anytime the Bible does that, it does that for spiritual or theological emphasis. So what is going on here? Well, commentators notice that not laying hands on their plunder uh, is language of holy war. And that this passage is a finishing up of a holy war that actually started 500 years ago. See, in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul is commanded by God to destroy the sinful enemy nation of the Amalekites. Um, but King Saul doesn't actually follow through. He doesn't destroy everything as God commanded. Instead, he spares the life of the king of the Amalekites, King Agag, and he also spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, fattened calves, lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, is what the Bible says. Now we get to our passage 500 years after, and you have the descendants of King Saul and King Agag, Mordecai, who is from the tribe of Benjamin, just like King Saul was, and Haman, who's from the tribe of Agag. So it took 500 years later, but God has circled around, and he's finished the good work he started in his people. This is a common theme in the scriptures. God isn't finished with his work, and he's oftentimes circling back to accomplish his work of redemption, even though he seems hidden or absent. Paul iterates this point in his letter to the Philippians, 
when he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, we live and work in Persia, as we've been saying, where it often feels like God is hidden. Uh, maybe you recently moved into the city, but it's not quite the grandeur that you expected. Uh, you had to settle for an apartment that is crumbly and old and pre-war, uh, no elevators. Um, and you also had to settle for a job that was less than uh, ideal. Uh, you feel lonely in this big city and you lack the true friendships that you used to have in your hometown when you grew up. And maybe some of us couple this also with a strain in our own personal spiritual decline. Uh, maybe it's been a while since you felt the conviction of truth uh, from a sermon, or you haven't felt the warmth of uh, community family. Well, in this place, we can feel stuck and conclude that God isn't real, or he's deserted me, or he, he, he's, he's absent, and maybe he's even apathetic. But anytime you get into this point, Anytime you feel stuck like this where God seems hidden, I want you to remember this story that I'm about to tell now, and it's a personal story. Uh, this past week, my wife wanted to um, go to her um, Pilates class. I think it was like a Wednesday, and so, of course, you know, she went with a friend of hers, and, and, but you know what that means? That means that I have the responsibilities of feeding the baby, bathing the baby, and putting the baby down, and so we... we Fed her, and so check, a third of the way to go. And then now it's time for bath time, and I, you know, fill up the tub with water, and, you know, I'm shampooing her hair, when all of a sudden I realize that I forgot to bring in the clothes I have to change her into, um, into the bathroom with me. And it becomes a little bit complicated if I don't do that, and so I figured, you know, I'll just leave her for like 15 seconds, right? And, and by the way, don't do this. You're not supposed to leave babies in the tub by themselves. But I just figured, you know, it's just a few seconds, right? Just a few steps to her drawers. So I said, okay, Daddy, we'll be, we'll be back real quick. And, and so I just kind of blitz out of the bathroom, go to her drawers, just kind of collecting her things, when all of a sudden I hear the wailingest wail I've ever heard from uh, my daughter. And it was just a shriek, and so I'm freaking out, but, you know, I still have to remember the clothes. And so I collect it as soon as I can. I run into the bathroom, but as soon as I step into the bathroom, she stops. It was because I was gone, right? But probably, probably from her perspective, she was thinking, you know, my father, my father, where have you, you know, why have you forsaken me? You know, cast me not from your presence, Right? But from, my, but from my perspective, as the father's perspective, is like, I was, just, I was just gone for a second, and I was getting close for you, right? I, I want you guys to remember this. When you get stuck, when, you're, when you get into a place where you feel like God's hidden, where he's absent, where maybe you, you feel like he's apathetic or something, but I want you to remember, could it be that God isn't hidden, but he's behind the scenes, could it be that God isn't absent, but he's present where you're not? God isn't apathetic, but deeply passionate in zeal and compassionate in love, ordering the course of history so that he can be faithful to his promises. Now, isn't this the gospel? Thank God for this. Because when we look at the cross, there we see a dead and defeated, quote-unquote, king, 
He suffered humiliation and shame. He was a cursed man hanging on a tree, and we're told in the scriptures that God turned his face away from his son, the same son that he declared holy war on. He didn't spare anything. He utterly destroyed his son. But you know what? This was the plan of God. You know, when it was the darkest hour in all of history, it was only the working out of God's promises of old for a new day for his people. You know, the gospel gives us a new perspective on the course of all of history, but not only that, the gospel gives us a new perspective on the course of our own personal lives. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is what we remember, that God remembers, that he hasn't forgotten, that he hasn't forgotten his promises, and it'll finish the good work he started in his people. That's the what to remember, but how to remember it, right? Remembering is important, but how do we not forget now? Are there good ways to remember? And the passage talks about this now. Let's turn to uh, verse 20 and following together. We're told Mordecai recorded these events. And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar. as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So you know what Mordecai and Esther do? They set up this annual festival of remembrance. Uh, so you could say that they wrote in a culture of remembering God's work. It was regular, it was reoccurring, and it was all about remembrance. And I think we can take the cue here to write, um, take the cue here, and become writers of a culture here at our church to remember God and his work in us. But first, a fair warning as we do, because we do need to think carefully about our culture and traditions and how we write them. Because you see, Mordecai and Esther wrote it into law, this annual festival of remembrance. But it's not something that actually God commanded, even though there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just not the law of God. And so anytime you make a good thing, a required thing, uh, it becomes that much harder to maintain. I mean, think about your taxes, right? April 15th, every year, it kind of rolls around. It, none of us are leaping for joy that we have to fill out our taxes, even though we know that taxes are good, right? We should be paying our taxes. Why? Because it's going to fuel a sustaining government in our nation and its structures and infrastructures and you know thank god that we have to pay taxes because those taxes are going to the self-defense systems of our nation so that we can sleep well at night right so taxes inherently are a good thing but if it becomes a requirement i'm not saying it still is a bad thing but it it there's a drudgery that's that sets in and it becomes harder to maintain Jaroslav Pelikan, in his 1983 Jefferson Lectures in Humanities, wrote this about traditions. You can find it in your bulletin. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. 
I know, we need a second with that again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Dead people wrote it, but it's still living faith. Even to today, that's what it's saying. But traditionalism, when you add, add the ism to it, is the dead faith of the living. It's functionally devoid of meaning at that point. And I suppose he adds, uh, I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. Kevin DeYoung echoes this idea when he once wrote that traditions can become wonderful servants to what you're trying to remember. But when the thing that you're trying to remember is the thing that's governing you, it can become a terrible master. Some of the dumbest and most hurtful things we do in life are owing to unthinking allegiance to tradition. And so the application is this for us. What are some good traditions we have at our church? Uh, well, at Exilic, here are some of the things that I think are good and things that we should continue. By no means uh, uh, is it law that we obey them, but um, I think they're good, and so we'll continue them as long as they are good. Um, for instance, and you've, and you've heard it um, before at the pulpit here, but at the beginning of our pastoral staff meetings on Mondays, the beginning of every week, uh, we start by sharing stories about you guys. Uh, we like talking about you guys. We like sharing stories about what's happening in our people's lives. Uh, but you know, I was thinking about this past week, and most of the stories that we share are about stories that are still in seed form, like someone who's gone from the church for a little bit, and then they've come back, and you know what? We like jump, jump up in joy. Uh, we jump up um, and down with joy uh, because of that. Why? Even though it's in seed form, we start thinking about the possibilities of what God can do in this individual. And so we're like, oh man, this person hasn't been to church for like three years. They've been church shopping all over the city, and now they're back. You know, maybe they'll become a pastor someday, right? And we start just dreaming wildly because we get so excited about what God can do in that individual. Now, relatedly, we have something that we call exilic stories, where periodically throughout the year, we feature some sort of story uh, from one of our members at the church about how God is working in their life. And again, I love these stories because they're so realistic. None of them have um, some like saccharine, cheesy like ending, like, oh, but now my life is great, and it's going to be like that forever, and it's not like that. It's, it's always something like, you know, this is where I was, but now in Christ, this is where I am, and now I'm still this work in progress, but thanks be to God. Far more interesting, far more real, um, and far more encouraging for all of us, right? Uh, finally, uh, I look forward to every month, uh, the first Sunday of every month, when we gather together to partake in communion, and this is just a wonderful part of the culture of the church is Christ has instituted for it. He says, remember me as you do this. But you know, there's an aspect of partaking in communion that I want to focus on here. And it's this work that the work he started, he's going to finish. Because Jesus said when he instituted this meal with his disciples and eventually for the church, he said this, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day, I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
meaning I'm going away from you for a time. And for that time, I'm not going to be partaking with you in this meal, but there will come a day when I will, when my Father's kingdom is made anew, and I'm going to be at that table with you again. Uh, And so this can be a call to all of us, especially relevant today as we think about our last day here at at Alante Studios for Sunday service. Um, If the founding members of Exilic Church, and I'm thinking people like Aaron and Hannah and Camby who's sitting out here, um, John and others who've come along the way, of course, Jean and Jeannie, right? Our our forefathers and our foremothers of this church, uh, they were the culture makers and the culture setters and thus also the historians of our good traditions here. They've done that work, but now what about us, the new members? Well, the new members in conversation with our forefathers and foremothers can be architects and innovators of new traditions and cultures. All, so just as we can be bold with our traditions and confident with our traditions, we can also be humble and creative to write new ones. All of us can and, and should have a part in becoming culture makers and architects of good traditions at our church, ones that rightly remember God. And, become, and, and this can become a thing of a living and progressing heritage of faith. So what do we need to remember? That God will finish the good work that he started in his people. And how are we going to remember that? We, we should remember that through good living traditions. Now, lastly, I want to end by talking about why we really need to remember, the reason why, right behind the why. We need to remember because God isn't done with his work of redemption. And chapter 10 actually alerts us to the fact because the book ends on this awkward mood that makes you yearn for more. Look with me. Uh, Chapter 10, King Xerxes, it says, imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. And all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king Xerxes, or to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews." You know, actually, when you, when you read this story, you might be tempted to think, it's quite a turnaround, huh? Right? I can't snark at that. Uh, the people of God went from the brink of extinction to second place. Hey, that, that's pretty good, right? I'll take that. But you know, the fact remains, an evil king is still on the throne, imposing his taxes, But a parallel fact remains for us today, that this world will continue to impose its various taxes on us. And we might be tempted to settle for advancing socially or professionally, just like Mordecai, and be happy with that. And I can understand that to a degree, because hey, if if life is pretty good and good enough, then who cares, that's good enough, it'll suffice. But as one preacher once said, it's hard to pray Thy kingdom come when your kingdom has had such a good year. So if the book of Esther has taught us anything, it calls us to remember two things, 
Two things. The first is this, that even though the kingdom of Xerxes has disappeared, an evil empire still remains and is all around us. We can't escape it. We'll still continue to struggle against unjust leaders, systemic injustices like racism like we talked about last week. We'll have to reflect and think deeply about the implications of assimilating to the cultural mores of the day. We'll have to over and over again at certain crossroads in life make decisions that will force either your faith or your reputation onto the line. And we'll still be subject to the evils of this cruel and heinous and harsh world. But here's the second thing to remember. And the second thing is this. This is not always going to be the case. As one commentator put it, the the day is coming when our king will return to claim his throne. And the days of the evil empire will end. The day is coming when the angels will cry out at last, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, 5. 15. A day is coming when we won't come in second place, but will become co-heirs with Christ in the new kingdom of God. And so I want to end on this. If you look in your bulletins, I have a quote for you. Uh, It's a poem called Light Shining Out of Darkness, and it's written by William Cooper. And he writes this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You know, William Cooper, who, by the way, was a friend of John Newton, the great English abolitionist who also wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, William Cooper has also been quoted by figures like Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement. But he wrote these lines before the onset of a depressive illness. You know, Cooper was someone who knew that God could be hidden from his sight, but the eyes of his faith was able to pierce through it and behold a greater glory to come. And so the charge is this as we end our sermon series in Esther, that we as a church, whatever powers of this evil world will impose on us, and however hidden God may seem to be, let's be a church that remembers that God will finish the work he started in us. Let's pray. Father, we want, to, we want to remember you well. We remember who you are and what you've done for us. And that is to finish the work that you started in us. And so, praise and glory be to your name for that work that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.